Amen. Good morning. It is great to see you. Good morning. Good morning. This is a this is a uniquely special day. Every Sunday, every Sabbath is special because it's every week that we come together to stop with the urgent madness and stop in the midst of the important the important place, the important things, the, the midst of peace, uh, and remember that God is working out His salvation in us and His redemption of the world. So it's special because of that, but it's uniquely special today because let me tell you what's going to happen in just a little while. Down this aisle is going to walk a beautiful bride. And she's going to meet that man. Where is he? Stand up. Make him stand up, groomsmen. Just make him stand up. She's going to meet that man. Yes. And those men are going to make sure that he's there. Right, men? She's going to walk down the aisle in the midst of her community. White as the driven snow. And she's going to stand with that groom. And they're going to make a vow, a sacred covenant together before the Father in a very literal sense. (laughs) If you know what I'm talking about, this is our senior pastor's daughter, and he's doing the vows. They're going to make a sacred vow before the Father to love each other like Christ. And the groom will be here, and the bride will be here, and the father will be here, and the mother will be here. God uses a marriage analogy in our relationship with Him. God the Father, God the Son, God the who? God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the metaphor is the mother. The Holy Spirit will be present in this wedding today. The encourager, the equipper, the empowerer, the doter, the weeper, the one who please. The Holy Spirit will be here today. So it's appropriate that this very day I get to preach on Pentecost. The day that Christ's promise was fulfilled and God the Holy Spirit was poured out on his people. So here's the deal. I am Presbyterian. We uh, pride ourselves in knowledge and we kind of, maybe we, we get imbalanced in, in head stuff and in intellect and we can even take something as amazing as the Holy Spirit, someone as amazing as that, and we can deconstruct it into a set of principles. So the worst possible sin I could commit besides heresy today is to preach a boring sermon on the Holy Spirit. So I'm a little amped up, okay? I'm a little amped up. And uh, it could be, it's the Holy Spirit, but maybe in cooperation with my uh, sweet cream vanilla coffee thing that I got at Starbucks, and I did not pace myself. I just took it down like a bottle of Gatorade. So I don't know how it's going to last, but you're going to get the good stuff in the second service. I might crash. (laughs) But you cannot preach a message on the Holy Spirit that is dry and dead and boring and self-consumed or self-interested. Because the Holy Spirit came to eliminate all of that. So, with that in mind, we turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And you need to know, uh, just to give you a little context if this is new to you, that the Pentecost happened during the Feast of Weeks. Okay, the Festival of Weeks. This was a Jewish festival. They'd they'd participate in this festival for for, uh, 
eons before this. And it's really fascinating that it comes, that that when Christ came, when he was uh, crucified and resurrected, that was during the season of Passover, right? When they would sacrifice the pure lamb to atone for the sins, you know, to remember that God set them free from their slavery. And then this is 50 days later. This is seven weeks later. That's why they also called it the Feast of Weeks. And this was when the, the nation of Israel celebrated, and this is important, the harvest. They celebrated the harvest of wheat. And so for this period of time, for this period of time, uh, they would have planted their wheat and their wheat would be growing. This is, this is in Israel today. And their wheat would be growing and it would be green, but then it would turn to gold. And they would harvest the wheat and they would spend a time celebrating the God of the harvest. And on that very day, for some reason, the Holy Spirit is poured out on His people. So with that in mind, let's turn to the text. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled all with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They had all come to Jerusalem for this feast. For this festival. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, people who converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and said, they're all filled with new wine. That's cheap wine, by the way. This is just a group of people that went out and bought a bunch of cheap wine and got hammered. But Peter, did you hear that name, those of you who know about Peter? But Peter, Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Cliffhanger, what does he say? Well, you're going to have to read ahead. He preaches the gospel with boldness. But I wanted to leave it there for a reason and we'll get to that later. Before we go on, we need to acknowledge something here. We almost need to acknowledge this every time we come to any kind of miraculous narrative in the Scriptures. Let's be honest, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're spiritual or secular or whatever you are, in our culture, in our day and age, as children of the Enlightenment, 
this story strains credulity, does it not? And those of us who have faith in God and, 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 and faith in our Christianity, we try and make this okay somehow. But here's the problem. To deny this kind of thing, you have to turn a blind eye, you have to close your mind to all kinds of evidence that the physical world is not all there is. It's funny, there's kind of been a turn. The results of the Enlightenment where they said, all this spiritual stuff, you can't prove it. We need evidence, evidence. And now the pendulum has swung and we said, okay, let's look at evidence. And People who have rejected the spiritual world and supernatural thing are going, la, 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 la. It takes a lot of faith to believe that there is no creator behind things that are so clearly created. That there's no designer behind something that is so obviously designed. So I just want to ask all of us to consider that and to open our minds to this idea that there is a supernatural world that is integrated with the physical world and in reality, the physical world springs forth from that supernatural world. And give this story a chance to take deep root in not just your mind, but your heart and your will because it belongs in all three. So as we consider this story, as I said, uh, we, can, we can get to where we deconstruct these things uh, and, and make them in intellectual exercises. And so this is a very worthy part of your own personal worship throughout the week when you're in these passages. Um, anytime there's a biblical narrative, you can almost be assured that throughout the ages, people have captured it in their imagination through art. So I did that this week, and there were hundreds of these. But I just want you to take a moment, and I'm not going to say anything, and I want you to just look at how... Talented artists throughout history have imagined this moment. I encourage you to do those things in your personal study. Let the scriptures move beyond your mind into your heart and your will. People as diverse as the sands of the sea throughout the ages with the image of God imprinted in their hearts, seeing through different perspectives and with different gifts this moment when God the Holy Spirit came down to earth because the Holy Spirit is a he and not an it he is alive and he's powerful the common thread as you look through those pictures was fire the scriptures say that something like a rushing wind came down and tongues of fire descended on the heads of all the disciples in that room and it was more than the eleven by the way it was all the believers that were there received the Holy Spirit. So I want to make a note about fire, an observation about fire. In the Old Testament, when God's glorious uh, presence was shown, it was almost always shown as fire. Can you think of examples of that? Abra Abraham and the blazing torch. When God called Abraham, he appeared to him as a blazing torch when he made his covenant with Abraham. Moses in the burning bush. Remember Moses walked up on the mountain and was confronted by a bush that was burning without being consumed. The Lord spoke from it. You remember Israel in the wilderness? Pillar of fire by night was God leading them through the wilderness. Do you remember that? And here's a big one. Here's a big one. Mount Sinai, when Israel, the people of God, 
received his law, what happened on that mountain? They approached that mountain and descending on the mountain was smoke and fire. And from that mountain, Moses went up and received what? The law from the purifying fire that was God, the transcendent one, manifesting his holiness, showing what happens when imperfection and impurity and corruption appears in the presence of perfect holiness. It's deadly. Fire was deadly to the people of Israel and only certain people could go into His presence. And here's what's so amazing about the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, every believer becomes a burning bush. That fire so holy and pure and set apart and deadly comes and rests in God's temple, His people. And it wraps around them and it envelops them and it becomes something entirely different. It's still all those things, but it becomes more. God completes His story of redemption by taking that fire that was once deadly because it was pure and we were not and making a way so that that fire, that purity could descend into the heart of every follower of Christ. Second thing I want you to note from this passage is the joyful obsession with the Gospel. It says that these people spoke out about what? The wonders of God. They spoke of His miraculous acts in salvation. With the Holy Spirit in you, you want to talk about the Gospel. It's natural to you. You have a new facility to preach the Gospel. You're preoccupied with it. You're always thinking, learning, growing in your ability to share the Gospel. And I want you to note something about this as well. Note that with this new Holy Spirit power, they did not say, look at this power. Come get this power. They weren't throwing balls of flames around and making wind and tornadoes and going, don't you want this power? No, they said, by the power of the Holy Spirit, look at this Jesus. Their message wasn't get the power. Their message was receive Christ. And that's what Peter preached, by the way, on that day. And 3,000 more were added to their number. So note the joyful obsession with the gospel. Another thing, note that the gospel is for everyone in every culture. Did you notice, why did they go to the trouble of listing by name all of the different peoples and cultures and regions very specifically, well, why did they do that? Well, because it sent a message that the gospel, though it is transcendent, speaks to every nation. It doesn't go and seek to change culture. You don't have to become a Westerner to receive the gospel. You don't have to necessarily change your clothes and these kinds of things and eat different food to become a believer. No, the gospel goes out in every tongue, in every language, and it redeems culture. It shows each color where, culture where it's imbalanced where it's lost its sense of justice or beauty, where it needs to be redeemed. And then it takes those cultures and it makes them new again. Remember what it says in Revelation, that on that great day when the new Jerusalem comes, it says every king from every nation will bring his treasures, his art, his beauty, his commerce to the new city. So note that the gospel is for every culture. 
And God resolves an interesting conflict here. Think all the way back in the Bible, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, think all the way back to that story in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Do you remember this story? So what happens is people, after the pattern of Adam and Eve, are becoming pridefully rebellious and seeking to build a tower to to the heavens. In other words, they're seeking to be God for themselves. So to disrupt their rebellion and their pride, God, with the power of His Word, confuses their language. And they scatter. And there's division and there's war and there's strife. There's conflict among the nations because of their pride. Well, here, God brings that part of His redemptive story in full circle to reveal to you and me what His plan is for all of those nations. He brings them back together by the power of the gospel. Whereas because of their pride and rebellion in that story in the Old Testament, their languages were confused and they were changed and they were diversified and sent out into the world. Here, the world came to Christ. They came and they heard the gospel, each in their own tongue, and it transcended. And God used that gospel language to institute, to instigate, to inaugurate the completion of his plan to restore everybody to perfect fellowship with each other and with him. Watch the news tomorrow. And remember that that's what God is doing. But how is he doing it? He's doing it through his people. So with all of those things in mind, I want to walk through our personal worship. Um, I want to create this habit in you to approach scripture this way each week. Even whether you're doing our personal worship passage or not, the the passage we preach on. I want you to walk through scripture with these things in mind. So first, remember this about God. God is a fire that purifies and empowers. God is a fire that purifies and empowers. Remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not just a force or a physiological, a a psychological construct. And he's a person who is in you when you receive Christ. When you receive Christ, you receive not just power for stronger, good living or boldness, not just a good set of ideas. A person, God himself, indwells you. God the Father and God the Son are present in you because the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That was the promise of Jesus. I must leave so the Spirit can come. I'm going to my Father's to prepare a place for you. But the Spirit, in the Spirit, I will be with you, Jesus says. So remember that about God. Be honest with God about yourself. Step back for a moment and consider this. Martin Luther said... Human nature is in curvatus in se, bent in on itself. We are prone to blame our struggles on things outside of us and rely on things inside of us to fix them. If you dream it, you can do it, and you can overcome any obstacle if you just look hard, far enough inside. There's a New York Times article a few years ago and a former uh, psychotherapist who had become a branding consultant for psychotherapists because they were seeing uh, their industry decrease by 30% over a period of time. 
I don't know what it is today, but up until about 2012, it had been decreasing. It had been declining. How many people were going to the psychotherapist? And this uh, former psychotherapist who'd become a branding consultant uh, lamented about, and this is a quote, a shift from people who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves better to people who would come in because they wanted someone else or something else to change. She said, I would see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change. Instead, they would come in and say, how can that change? Because it can't be me. Culture says all our problems come from the outside, and you have it inside of you to cure. Christianity flips that on its head, whether for better or for worse, whether you like it or not, Christianity says our key problems are inside, and you need to invite the Holy Spirit into your life. It is impossible, ultimately, to grow, to change without the Holy Spirit in you working out that change. And that's accomplished through Christ. The person of the Holy Spirit is evidence that God is not mad at you. That's the next thing, rest. We remembered, we were honest, and now we rest in His grace. The person of the Holy Spirit is evidence that God is not mad at you. If you've come to Christ... If Christ has atoned for your sins, if He's done the work of salvation in you, the Holy Spirit is evidence that God is not mad at you. Does that mean He doesn't discipline you? He doesn't chasten you? Does that mean that the, that the Spirit can't be grieved by your behaviors? He can't be resisted, subdued in you? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that God's wrath has been appeased by the work of Christ. So the person of the Holy Spirit is evidence that God is not mad at you. And instead, God is with you in every sense of that word. Not only is God not mad at you, He's not just a king up there that said, all right, I'll let him off this hook because my son paid for their sins. No, 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 no. He came into you to dwell in you. He's not only not mad at you, He's with you in every sense. Here's what it says in Romans 8, 16. It says the Spirit, Holy Spirit, bears witness... That we are what? Children of God. When the Holy Spirit comes down on you, remember how it did on Jesus? When, when Jesus was baptized and it said that a dove, came, the God, a dove came down and the Father proclaimed what? This is my Son in what? In whom I am well pleased. And what did the Son come to do for the Christian? He came to replace their sin with His holiness so that the Father would look at them and say, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. When the Holy Spirit comes down on you, you will experience more than just power to do things. You will experience the Father's arms. Now as an aside, and this is not in my notes, you may be sitting there thinking, I've never felt that. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've grown up in the church. I've never felt the Father's arms. Let me tell you, you should stop everything you're doing. You should drop everything and explore why that is. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into you, 
The Father wraps His arms around you. And here are some things that the Scriptures say. It says the Father delights in you. It says the Father has gone to infinite lengths to save you. Have you seen the movie Taken? Who's seen the movie Taken? Okay, so in the movie Taken, it's about this guy, and he's like a former Special Forces guy, and his daughter gets kidnapped by these international bad guys, kidnappers, and sent into the, you know, the human trafficking slave trade. And why do we love this movie? Because the father marries together the skills which every one of us fathers wish we had. And he gets on the phone and he says, I have a very particular set of skills. And I'm coming for you. That's my best Welsh accent. And we love it. We love it. Why? It's not just because he then proceeds to go and kick the rears of all these bad guys. It's because we all know deep inside that that is a real father. And every man looks at that and says, yes, I want to do that. And every child watches that movie and says, I hope my father would come after me that way. Please don't lose the fact that the Holy Spirit is the Father and the Son present in you. In those moments of decision or indecision, in those moments of struggle, in those moments not only of sin or temptation to sin, but in those moments of despairing, in those moments of hopelessness, remember this, who, do, you, do you realize who is in you? Who is watching? Who is weeping? Who is guiding? Offering his fatherly love and support and power. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, it says. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And another thing, he will never, the Holy Spirit in you is evidence that the Father will never let you go because it's not about the strength of the weak, feeble, finite little child's impulsive arms trying to hold on to the Father, is it? It's about the resolve and the love and the power and the strength of the Father to hold on to the child no matter what his rebellions. When he adopts you as his child, that's what it means. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Your father is going to use your struggles to refine you. He's going to make you beautiful. And he's going to make you useful. But he's not angry at you. He let that go. Because of Christ. With that voice of the Holy Spirit in you, then you should feel like you can do anything. Interesting little verse about the drunk part. Where he says, ah, they're all drunk. With the Holy Spirit, you look drunk. When the Holy Spirit is functioning in you, you have a measure of joy and happiness that really is a little irritating to people sometimes. 
It just doesn't make sense. And you get accused of being naive or never having gone through any uh, real trials in your life. I got news for you. The people I know who are the most profoundly and deeply joyful, uh, those people who have embraced the work of the Holy Spirit in them are the most profoundly joyful. It almost requires the crucible of struggle to fully realize the power and the work of Holy Spirit and to separate your circumstances from your joy. So you look drunk when you uh, have the Holy Spirit. He gives you joy and happiness, but he doesn't do it like alcohol. Alcohol makes you happy because it makes you stupid. <laughs> it blinds you a little bit. It numbs you a little bit. It makes you not see the things that are... It lowers your ability to absorb reality, to remember your responsibilities. To see yourself clearly. That's what alcohol does. What does the Holy Spirit do? No, no, no. The Holy Spirit does it completely the opposite. The Holy Spirit makes you smart. The Holy Spirit reveals more to you. He makes you more aware of reality. The Holy Spirit enlightens you to the larger reality and the beautiful end. That's how a Christian endures persecution. That's how a soldier fights for his country and dies for his or her country. Not because they're drunk and inhibited, but because they've been enlightened and illuminated to the whole story. So get drunk on that. Receive. Receive God's wisdom. Christianity is about resurrection. Remember that. Christianity is about resurrection and not just uh, of Christ, uh, not just of Christians, not just of souls, but of all things. And remember that for something to be resurrected, for someone to be resurrected, it must start out alive, not dead. That, I don't know what you call it, resurrected, I don't know, brought to life. To, for something or someone to be resurrected, it was once alive. It was once everything it could be, and it died. And that's the way God made all things. Resurrection is when life comes again. And this is what God is up to, and this is why He goes to all the nations. And this is why we don't only preach the gospel to save souls. We preach the gospel with our lives and our words because resurrection not only applies to the human soul, but there can be resurrection of dignity for a Dalit in India who suffered as sub subhuman, 250 million of them for thousands of years, living as substandard below slavery, the gospel says there can be resurrection of their dignity along with their soul. The gospel says that there can be resurrection of love and intimacy in a dead marriage. The gospel says that generosity can be resurrected from the rotting stench of greed. The gospel says that addiction can be nailed to the cross of Christ and a thriving person of integrity can emerge again. The work of Christ freed you from the guilt of your sin. But the work of the Holy Spirit, Spirit is cultivating the resurrection of the image of God in you and in this world. It is much bigger than fire insurance. Last thing, we go and we do what it says. We remember, we're honest, we rest, we receive, we go. 
You have been raised to proclaim Christ. At the end of this passage, and the reason I ended this passage where I did is because I wanted you to see something. And I like the NIV, the New International Version's translation of this better. The, The little phrase in verse 14, and Peter stood up. And Peter stood up. The Holy Spirit comes down in power. All of these people receive this power of the Holy Spirit. They begin proclaiming the wonders of God and the miraculous work of Christ. And there's a buzz and a bustle and people all start gathering around. And they start talking. How is this possible that we're all hearing them in their own language? And somebody says, ah, they're drunk. And then Peter stood up. Peter, remember Peter? Not very long before this, as you recall, Peter was a coward. Peter was a big mouth. He was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, making big promises. And at the darkest hour of his Lord and his Savior Jesus, Peter abandoned him, coward, denied him three times. Well, let me tell you what transition happened in Peter. It wasn't just because Peter saw the resurrection. It was this Holy Spirit who entered into him in power. This passage is one of the reasons that go and do what it says is in the rhythm that we teach you. That every time you enter scripture, you ought to be looking for all those other things, remembering God and being honest and resting in his grace and receiving his wisdom, but you should never leave those scriptures without asking, what shall I then go and do? This is why the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was commemorated on the day that the people celebrated the harvest. Because the renewal of God's creation, what is the harvest but another representation of death to life? The seed goes into the ground and dies and springs up to life. What a perfect analogy, what a wonderful day for God to send the Holy Spirit to empower His people to go and be who they are supposed to be. So here's the deal with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, you have access Stop for a moment and put yourself in that room. If you have come to saving faith in Christ, put yourself in one of those paintings or, or, or how you imagine that room to be when that spirit came, that wind and fire came down, that purifying fire entered into those people. And remember that that fire came down on you. And you have the same intimate relationship with God and the same miraculous power as did those first Christians who experienced personal peace, who saw their friends and their neighbors and their city and their world come to Christ through the Spirit's work in them. Your staff and your leaders work on technique all the time. We're always talking about strategy and better ways to minister to people and do things and serve and serve you. It's all worthless without the Holy Spirit. Worthless without belief and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you what, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can trip over your own tongue and a rock will come to Christ. So I'll leave, you, I'll leave you with the words of one of my favorite pastors. 
preached over 100 years ago. His name was Charles Spurgeon. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, seminary guys like me don't often come to you and ask you to empower us because it's scary, it's fearful. We don't want to be made a fool. But we come to you, Father, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We come to you, Son. We come to you, Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would break any chains of resistance in us to the power and work of your Holy Spirit through us so that people might not just know that power, but might know the Christ who bought it and applies it to his faithful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.